What is up, everybody? I am Adam. He is Matt. This is Fouled Out. Matt is here for the intro this week. I am the Matt in the intro. (laughs) (laughs) So today we're going to be talking about some of our favorite players in the draft this year who are not quarterbacks. We spent probably two and a half hours talking about quarterbacks last week and had to edit it down to 90 minutes. (laughs) Let me tell you. I deserve an award for editing that podcast. I like not to toot my own horn, but oh my God, it took so much. And I felt like it still came out pretty good. So. Uh, and I was even tempted to put Mond in this list. So <laughs> so we're, we're going to try not to go for two and a half hours. But yeah, so we're, Matt and I both uh, brought a couple of our favorite prospects. And we're going to talk about them. We'll give you guys some quick hitters at the end. But first, theme music. of the theme and ready to talk about some of these prospects. So these guys are just guys that we picked out of the draft for, you know, reasons. We'll we'll get into what those reasons are, but they, Matt and I both look for certain things in draft prospects. And these are just some of the guys that really stood out to us when we were going over the full list. The more you guys listen to this podcast, the more crazy theories Matt and I are going to throw out there. (laughs) And this is, this seems like the perfect time to bring up the first of these very crazy theories, which there's going to be a lot. So, and that's, this is a theory that I've been bugging Matt with since college. So it's been about 10 years that I, I started this theory a long time ago and it's applicable to every draft class. And Matt's given me the look on the zoom because he knows what I'm about to say, but I like to call this the big fish, small pond theory of drafting a prospect. This is something that applies to, you know, not only football, it applies to basketball as well. And, you know, you probably could apply this to a lot of other sports too. But in the sense of football, the big fish, small pond theory is basically that when a non-traditional football school comes out of nowhere to have a huge season that is an indicator to me that there are very talented players on that team who are going to succeed at the next level. And, you know, we're basically calling it the big fish, small pond theory, because you have these really great players who are going to this non-traditional school. Like we're, you know, we're not talking about the Texas's and the Alabama's and the Ohio States of the world. We're talking about the small schools who, you know, all of a sudden have a season where they finish in the top 10 or they, go to a major bowl game, something like that. And the reason it indicates that to me is basically that this school doesn't have the best talent around these players. Like, you know, at Ohio State or Alabama, you have a full roster full of five-star recruits or four-star recruits who are playing every single game together, and they make it a little easier on each other. But when you have one of these smaller non-traditional schools, you don't have the level of talent across the board that the bigger schools have. And so when you have a prospect who's like a first or second round prospect in the NFL, 
it indicates to me that this guy's really good and that he also elevated the play of the players around him. And that's why the team found so much success. So what, like, what is an example of this? Well, I brought a bunch. (laughs) (laughs) The first one and one of the most prominent ones, uh, this is the first two are really the two that made me start developing this theory. But back in the late nineties, early two thousands, Drew Brees played at Purdue. So you look at Purdue, they're not a traditional uh, football power. You know, they're not constantly finishing in the top 10 and they never have, not even back then. But they suddenly win a Rose Bowl or they go to the Rose Bowl. And like, that's, a, that's an automatic indicator to me that there's talent on that team. And like, it sounds kind of stupid, but think about like Purdue going to the Rose Bowl out of nowhere. It's impressive. And so Drew Brees ends up getting picked 32nd overall and ends up being what, Matt, what do you think? Top three quarterbacks of all time, top five quarterbacks of all time? Yeah, I mean, his top five is the absolute bare minimum. <laughs> yeah, that's the lowest we'll go on Drew Brees of this podcast is five all time. But still, like there was 31 guys drafted in front of him in that class. And if you go back and redo that class, he would be the first overall pick, hands down. The second example, and this was like really the big one to me that got me going on this, is that in 2007, Kansas comes out of nowhere and they almost made the national championship. If you guys remember back to that game, they were ranked, I think, number two in the nation at one point. And then they lost a game, I think, to Missouri, who was also crazy in the top five for some reason. Like, this is one of the best college football seasons of all time. But so Kansas almost goes to the national championship. They end up losing a game and they go on and win the Orange Bowl. Kansas. Like, how much success has Kansas ever had? And so you look back at that team and you've like, you know, if you look back now and go, wow, what, what happened? How did Kansas get so good all of a sudden? Well, they had a kid to and Chris Harris Jr. as the two corners on that defense. Like those are two guys who went on to find very high level success in the NFL. That is 50% of the no fly zone. Yeah. Like those guys went on to play together for the Broncos team that won the Super Bowl. <laughs> so you know, a lot of talent on that team. And it wasn't obvious at the time because Akib Tlaib was, you know, Akib Tlaib was taking 20th overall, which is pretty high for a corner. But Chris Harris went undrafted. Mistakes you know, were so, Yeah, mistakes were definitely made. So <laughs> uh, I'll throw, you know, some other quick examples out there. Uh, 2010, Nevada finished 15th in the country and their quarterback was Colin Kaepernick. Michigan State in the early 2010s got really good out of nowhere. They had Kirk Cousins and Le'Veon Bell on that team. Boston College had a great season one year. They got up to number two at one point. Their quarterback was Matt Ryan. And Georgia Tech went to the ACC title game at one point. And who was on that Georgia Tech team, Matt? Uh, Was his name Calvin Johnston? Calvin something was on that team. So, yeah, these these are just examples. Like, if you look back at those teams that I named, uh, Purdue, Kansas, Nevada, Michigan State, and, you know, I apologize to the Spartan fans. You guys are not a traditional football power. I know you were good for a couple of years in the 2010s, but guys, come on, be honest with yourselves. Uh, don't forget about Kentucky recently. Yeah, Kentucky too. And they had Benny Snell and Josh Allen the, who are now the, producing yes, the pros. The other Josh Allen. The no, other. <laughs> not the quarterback. My preferred Josh Allen because I'm a Patriots fan and I don't like Buffalo. <laughs> uh, yeah, but you, you can keep going. And, you know, we're going to talk about some prospects on this episode who – are coming off of their teams having the best season in the history of their teams in the last couple of years, or like at least the best season in a very long time. 
like a good example is, you know, we're going to talk about Rashad Bateman in a little while. You know, if you, if you listen to the Super Bowl pod, you heard Matt and I mentioned that we were really big on Antoine Winfield Jr., who played at Minnesota when Minnesota had a shot at the playoffs a couple of years ago. And Rashad Bateman was on that team as well. So I'm not saying that this is like an automatic, like, oh, they Coastal Carolina just had their best year ever. I want everybody on Coastal Carolina. But it is an indicator to me that these guys are not only really good because their teams were beating competition that was better than them and moving up the rankings. Like two years ago when Minnesota was in the top 10, it was like Clemson, Alabama, Ohio State, Minnesota. And it's like for them, for them to be considered all the way up there with the lower level of talent that they have on that team overall, it indicates to me that there are studs on that team and that the guys that were really great on that team elevated the play of everybody around them. And like Antoine Winfield Jr. is a great example because he was on that Minnesota team that did so well. And then he was a huge part of the Bucks defense last year and they went on and won the Super Bowl. So, you know, it's, it's not a guarantee, but it is, a theory of mine. It's like a little pet project that I've been bugging Matt with since 2010. So I, uh, I'll turn the floor over to Matt on this. What do you, what do you think? Do you think that there is any truth here? Or do you think that I'm insane? I mean, I think you're insane, but not because of this. So <laughs> both things can be true. <laughs> Two things can be true. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I mean, like, I think it's, it's, it's a really good measuring stick for, you know, where to look for, okay, where might there be talent? Indiana is a good case. Yeah, like, sure, Jamar Johnson isn't 4-3 speed, but made some pretty big plays over the last two years. And so when you can kind of have those blips on the radar that just kind of stand out and you're like, okay, well, now we can dig a little deeper, find out where this talent the reason I really brought this theory up in the first place is because a couple of the guys we're going to talk about on this podcast fit into it so perfectly. And, you know, it's not the main reason we like them, but it is one of the things I do when I'm looking at the draft is I say like, okay, Indiana was in the top 10 last year out of nowhere. Why were they so successful? Who's on Indiana that I want on my team as a pro. And I would just much rather have the overachievers of the world on my NFL team than the underachievers. Like, Keep me away from all the prospects from USC and Texas. You know, the inverse of this theory is also somewhat true. Like, look at Sam Darnold. He was at USC and USC underachieved with all the talent they had for years with Sam Darnold as a quarterback. And people were like, you know, oh, he's still going to be a great pro player. Like, I still want him because he has all the attributes of like a good pro. Well, he's been a massive disappointment so far. So, and not to say he can't turn it around. He might turn it around with all those guys in Carolina this year, but... Yeah, I mean, that's not necessarily a shot at Sam Darnold, but at the end of the day, USC never really was what it was supposed to be when he was there. And he certainly has the physical talent to have taken that team to where it was supposed to go. So then you have to kind of ask yourself, okay, why? It's other players as well, so. Yeah, and it's I'm sure that people could probably – hear this and go, oh, well, you know, so-and-so who played on this team in 2015 didn't pan out or like this guy who was on this disappointing Texas team ended up being a great pro. And I'm not saying it applies to everybody, but I just do, I think it's a really interesting measuring stick to look at when we're evaluating these guys is did their team overachieve or underachieve in college? Because 
ultimately this is a team game and your career as a pro is going to depend on how well you play with the team and how your team does basically when you're trying to elevate the level of the players around you. Yeah. It's a good tool for us to help evaluate players, but it's not like a calculator where you punch it in and just gives you the answer. Like, yeah. No one was going to be Aaron Donald. <laughs> like, <come> <laughs> it can't help you catch everybody. But like, if you listen to, I could, I could have gone on with examples for an entire podcast because there's so many examples of when this is hit. And that's why I wanted to bring it up. And so, like I said, a couple guys we're going to talk about fit perfectly into this theory. And Matt's going to take us through the first guy who is like a major hit for this theory because his team had one of the best seasons they've had forever this past year. You guys probably shouldn't be surprised who this first person is going to be because I've talked about him before and I've talked about how much I love him. And I almost started writing a poem about him. So I also just mentioned him about two minutes ago. I did. <laughs> Jamar Johnson, not the best athlete in the world. He's got good functional athleticism. It's more than enough to play safety in the NFL. As long as you're not asking him to be Earl Thomas. Just don't do that. <laughs> the reason I like him is so much is just, he's incredibly smart. He was a starting safety for an NFL style of defense and not just like, not a more conservative style of defense. This, if you go and watch Indiana's games, they were aggressive. I want to say they blitzed Ohio State more plays than they did not. Like it was, it was pretty ridiculous. And just week after week, you saw him playing mind games with different quarterbacks. One of which we talked about, uh, Justin Fields. I even said, maybe that's not fair to Justin Fields to evaluate him based on that game, because the things that that defense and in particular Jamar Johnson was difficult showing that you know, you're about to drop deep into cover two coverage and then, you know, sprinting towards the line of scrimmage as soon as the ball is snapped to fill a run fit. Those are hard things to kind of predict a player is going to do. And he just has this knack for messing with other players' heads and getting them to do exactly what he wants them to do. I mean, I don't know why anyone wouldn't want that out of a safety. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, especially when he's doing it against the elite talent in this draft class. Like, Indiana played eight games last year and went 6-2, and two, finished 11th in the country. So, like I said, he fits into the theory that we were laying out. And also, like Matt has said on the last podcast, and then like he was just saying, he's not, like, just pulling this stuff off against – like bad competition. Like he's not doing it against just Maryland and like Rutgers and like the bottom of the big 10. He did this to Justin Fields, who is one of the best prospects in this draft class and one of the top quarterbacks. He also has quite a bit of production. It's not just, you know, technical stuff. He takes the ball away. He has six interceptions over the last two years. And that's without playing, you know, full 16 game seasons. Sign me up for that. Right home, pay attention. <laughs> Matt's constant talking about Jamar Johnson on the podcast and through text that he sends me every single morning. Uh, <laughs> he, 
I started looking him up too. And just like, you're talking about his stats. Like, yeah, he had six picks. He also had, uh, what, eight tackles for a loss or something like that. Yeah. In like a season and a half and like four sacks. It's like, so you're, you're a safety who's like not only picking me off plays and playing well in coverage, but he's getting in the backfield and, you know, getting tackles for a loss and getting sacks on the quarterback. It's impressive. Yeah. And he, he can really do like a little bit of everything. Like, yeah. He is reliable in deep coverage. You, again, you probably don't want to have him spend all game playing center field, but he can do it here and there. He's going to be really, really good playing cover two. Uh, you need him to cover a tight end. Yeah, he can do that. He's got solid man coverage skills. Maybe don't put him on Tyree Kill in the slot, but like he can cover most guys in the slot. And you kind of start to look at the things that he can do because he's also really good at coming up and fitting in the run. It's starting to sound a lot like, you know, I don't know, maybe a guy named Tyron Matthew. Oh, that's a good that's a good comp. I didn't have that one. I think a lot of people would like to have Tyron Matthew on their team. Yeah. Me I in know. particular. I know I would. Hopefully Brad Holmes. Brad Holmes, listen <laughs> to this. Great back. Do it. Yeah, I so I watched a bunch of tape on him over the weekend and I the thing that stood out to me the most was something that you mentioned, and that's his ability to play against the run and in the box, as well as in coverage. And I was just saying this to you right before we got on the podcast is there's a play. If you go back and watch the game against Penn state where Penn state's in the red zone going into score and Jamar Johnson's playing almost on the line of scrimmage. Like he's just off of the defensive end kind of to the side and Penn state runs a read option and he reads it. Not only does he read it perfectly because the quarter, the quarterback keeps the ball. He reads it perfectly nails the quarterback and forces a fumble. So now instead of Penn state scoring a touchdown, it's Indiana's ball going the other direction. Like that play popped off the tape to me, you know, I'm watching the tape and just this dude is in the backfield constantly. And he, he had a huge sack in the Maryland game against uh, Maryland's quarterback, Tyrone Pigram, who coincidentally one of the best college football names, Tyrone Pigram. And like, if you guys don't know Tyrone Pigram, he's, like a really mobile quarterback. He's very fast and just, he cannot get away from Jamar Johnson. <laughs> it was like a duck in the water, man. Tyron, I don't know what a duck in the water Jamar, means. Jamar Johnson ran a four five eight at his pro day, but like you turn on the tape, he he's faster than that. And that's just because he's so good at anticipating like what's about to happen. I don't really care what you time. Like if you're getting to where you need to be and making plays, that's really all that matters. And, you know, some of the knocks on him are that, like, you know, he's, he misses some tackles and he's not a great athlete. But, like, you look at the tackles that he's missed and really it's not an issue of, okay, like, you didn't get there in time or you took a bad angle. It's just a little bit of te- technique needs to be coached into him. And that's fine because he comes down and – He's ready to hit, and you you gotta love that. Um, then, in terms of his athleticism, again, like I said, he plays faster than he timed. But then you look at things that he can do, like that play I talked about uh, last week in the Ohio State game, where he flips his hips to indicate to Justin Fields that he's dropping back one way, 
And then as soon as he starts to throw, he flips him the other way and takes off in a dead sprint. Not a lot of guys can do that. That is, that is the athleticism that not everyone thinks about. And that is almost more important than running a 4-4 and a 40. Because if you can't flip your hips, that's not going to matter anymore. Let me ask you a question real quick, because this, this applies to Jamar Johnson. And the more I think about this during draft coverage, the more that I wanted to talk about it on the pod real quick. Do you really care what a guy runs in a 40 at this point? To a degree, I do. Like, if I'm watching a guy on tape, say, say I'm watching a corner, and I, like, he does okay in college, but, like, I'm just a little bit worried about his speed. And then he runs a 4.7. <laughs> Taste of <laughs> <laughs> Like, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to be worried about that. Like, the outliers, that worries me. I guess if it's, like, excessively slow that you have a good point, I just meant yeah. more, like, especially in terms of someone like Jamar Johnson, I feel like there are certain players who play so much faster than their 40 time. Mm-hmm. And we, we talked about this recently, the fact that a lot of NFL scouts, they now have data to track how fast a player is playing on the field. And that that data is basically going to replace 40 time in the future, the better that data gets. And I think that's a good idea just because there's certain guys where I just feel like their 40 time doesn't match their tape. And like Jamar Johnson's a good case. Cause like you said, he's in the right spot quickly. And like I said, he sacked Tyrone Pigram on that play. He's in the backfield like fast and he's on you fast. And so like, if his 40 time is like, what do you say it was like four, five or something like that? Four, five, eight. Yeah. Which isn't like the best 40 time, but I kind of don't care about that. If people are like, he's, I feel like people look at that and go, no, he's slow. I don't want him. And I think that those people are dumb. <laughs> that's, that's all yeah, I have to well, say about that. Um, there's, there's also, so we go back to the days when we had an, an actual combine kind of hard to remember now, but you know, guys would make it run a little bit slow at the combine and then they would test faster at the pro day. And everyone just goes, Oh, well, like pro day numbers, they, they don't matter. Like it's, it's all hand time and they're just being super beneficial to them. But tell me, Adam, if you're say, say you're a little tight, are you going to run faster or slower? I'm a little what? It, say you're, you're feeling a little tight. <laughs> oh, I thought you said, say you're a little tiger. Are you going to run faster? Or <laughs> I, like, I hope I'm a fast little tiger. Little tiger. <laughs> Off topic. Yeah, if I'm tired, I'm probably running a little bit slower. Right. And so let's say, you know, you had an interview of your entire life for this amazing job that turns out to be playing in the NFL. And this interview involved you basically in your underwear running in a cold building. Do you think you might be a little bit tight? Are they going to ask me the tiger question in the interview? <laughs> Imagine you're a baby tiger. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I, I've always thought the combine, like I, I totally see what you're getting at here. The combine is kind of weird. Yeah. We have a bunch of players in their underwear interviewing with multiple executives who are asking them like crazy off the wall questions. And then they're like, okay, go run as fast as you can for 40 yards. And like people who have been to the combine repeatedly say like, it's cold in there. They don't, they don't keep that place heated. People discount the fact that like, it's, it's not ideal conditions and you're not necessarily warmed up, loose, ready to go. Whereas you go to your pro day, 
like you're doing that in ideal conditions. You're doing it somewhere that you're familiar with. You have your whole routine, like people that you're familiar with, like, yeah, you're going to be way more loose. So yeah, I get why 40 times are usually faster during that time. But back to Jamar, uh, the last comment I have on him is just like flat out competitiveness that he has. And that's going to be a common theme that I have with all of my guys. And honestly, when I was looking at your guys, it pops up too, like just an absolute competitor. You don't see none of that Eric Ebron crap where he misses a, uh, misses a block and then gives up on the play and leaves his running back trying to dodge more defenders that you could be blocking. Do you remember back when we played football, they called that a loaf play? Yep. They were like, don't be a loaf. You don't four or five guys that we're going to mention. If you watch their tape, you do not see any loaf plays. They, they're not giving up on plays. These are the guys who are pulling the proverbial DK Metcalf where they, you know, that play where Buda Baker intercepted the ball this yeah. past season and he chased him 90 yards downfield. Yeah. I'm not saying they have the athleticism to do that. I'm just saying they're not giving up on the play. Yeah. I mean, they, they want to win not just every game, every play. They want to come out every play on top. I'm now excited for Jamar. You've pulled me onto the Jamar Johnson hype wagon. It's a wagon or maybe it, I guess it's a wagon. <laughs> I was gonna, not, not quite a train yet, but we're on the wagon. If, if the rest of you join us, we might get, we might get to a train. <laughs> or a bigger wagon at least. But he is probably, I think the other thing that you could say about all these guys we're going to talk about is that they're probably going to be good value picks. Some of the positions, at least like, you know, Jamar Johnson safety is sometimes not valued as highly in the NFL draft. So safeties fall a little bit because you have all these like pass rushers and quarterbacks getting picked ahead of them. But if you look at how, like where the game is going, we talked about this a lot with the quarterbacks, the safety positions are becoming so critical to the future of the game that I feel like that's going to change in the next couple of years. And we're going to look back specifically with someone like Jamar Johnson in a couple of years, but like, how the hell did we let him get picked 25th or, you know, late first round, early second round when he is so critical to this defense going forward? Yeah. I mean, you think about it, like with the devaluation of the safety position, he could easily end up going third, maybe fourth round. I, if he does, I really hope it's to the Patriots (laughs) because I'd love to have him, especially like, I I would be happy picking him at 41. Where is he valued right now? Because I thought it was like late first, early second. I haven't seen a whole lot of first round hype with him, but I think if a safety goes in the first round, it's probably going to be Trevon Morg. Well, that'll be a mistake. That'll be someone's mistake, but it won't be ours (laughs) because we would pick him first of the safeties, I think, but. On to the next guy, I guess. And it's kind of funny. You guys could probably tell a lot about Matt and I about like by who we pick because your first two guys are defensive guys. My first two guys are offensive guys. <laughs> <laughs> They're offensive skill position guys. Uh, and then like one of, one of my uh, quick hitters is an offensive lineman. So I did that too, just because we had to give some love to the hog mollies. I purposely went out and found an offensive lineman that I would like because I was like, okay, I, we can't do a whole podcast about players we like and not mention someone who plays in the trenches because the trenches are so important. But yeah. uh, so my first guy is Rashad Bateman, the wide receiver from Minnesota. 
like I mentioned earlier, he was on that Minnesota team that almost went to the playoffs a couple of years ago. The first thing that kind of catches my eye with Rashad Bateman and like, we're going to, I'm going to get really like heavy into statistics here for a minute. And then we can talk about the table a little bit too, but I'm going to introduce you guys to a statistic that I just found out about recently, really two statistics that I didn't know about until this year. And until we started doing the draft coverage, but I think they're really fascinating. And the first one is called dominator rating and your dominator rating as a wide receiver is basically your market share or your percentage of the team's offensive production that you account for. So your quarterback has X amount of passing yards and uh, passing completions and passing touchdowns. And your market share of that is basically your dominator rating. And so it's, it's a little bit more, it's a little bit of a complicated calculation, but basically like a dominator rating from 20% to, you know, high twenties is like really good, really productive. And then once you start getting to like the thirties, it means that that guy's accounting for a huge share of his team's offensive production through the air. And so why is that important? Well, look at the dominator rating of all of the players in this draft. Rashad Bateman had the highest career dominator rating of any of the wide receivers including Jamar Chase and Devontae Smith, all these guys. He finished with a career dominator rating of 35%, even though he played in an offense where the quarterback is not very good. And he had another NFL caliber wide receiver in that offense with Tyler Johnson, who was drafted by the Buccaneers and played on the Buccaneers Super Bowl team last year. So he was that 35% for his career basically suggests that he should be a number one receiver in the NFL or a really high caliber contributor. The other statistic is called breakout age. And your breakout age is basically the age that you were at the beginning of the season when you had your first dominator rating at 20% or higher. And, you know, it's not just an arbitrary mark. There's some stats behind this that I won't get into, but 20% is basically like the, Hey, this guy is very, capable of being an NFL wide receiver. Once you see somebody start getting into 20% area and like simply put the younger your breakout age is basically like the younger that you hit that 20% dominator rating, the more likely you are to be successful at the next level. And that's because doing it at a younger age means that you're doing it against guys who are older and more experienced than you and more talented. So like, think about if you have your breakout season as a freshman or a sophomore, that typically means that you're beating corners who are, you know, sophomores, juniors, seniors, rather than if you wait to have your breakout season till you're a senior, then you're mostly playing guys who are either the same age or younger than you. And it kind of comes into effect in the NFL too. Like, is this guy going to start being productive right away or is he going to take some time? And the reason I wanted to talk about this in the context of Rashad Bateman is that not only did he have the best career dominator rating of any wide receiver in this draft, he also had the youngest breakout age. Like if you go back and look at breakout age, there's a bunch of guys who did it in their age 19 year in this draft, but he was the youngest at the start of the season. So like, again, are these things, this isn't a calculator. This isn't like you can say, oh, hey, look at his dominator rating and his breakout age, and he's automatically going to be successful. But there are, you know, teams of scouts and guys who have tracked this data. And it's basically suggested the higher your dominator rating is in your peak season and in your career, 
the more likely you are to be successful. And the younger you are when you break out, the more likely you are to be successful. And so he had, Rashad Bateman had the best career dominator rating and the youngest breakout age in this draft class. So, you know, it was definitely something that caught my eye. Matt, how do you feel about, this is a lot of statistics. It's like a big, you know, I could write a thesis on this and I will, uh, for anybody that's really interested in reading about this in depth, I will link the articles in the description of this podcast because there's, you know, I, I don't want to go on for hours on this, but it's really interesting that we're starting to look at things like this as like a predictor of NFL success. Yeah, I, I do agree with you that it's it's interesting and that it is absolutely a useful tool. It is absolutely not a predictor. It's not a calculator. But, I mean, there's clear examples of how that has been a clear sign that someone is going to be successful. Another player in this draft that you can kind of look at is J.C. Horn. Just last year, he held his own against the Alabama offense that had like four guys (laughs) who were going to be like first-round picks at wide receiver. And then came back this year and had probably one of the most dominant seasons a corner has ever had in college football. Looking at the performance at a younger age can kind of, not always, but in certain cases for sure, be an indicator of how quickly do you learn on the fly? Can you adapt when guys are better trained, potentially more developed than you, maybe even more talented? Like, Yeah, and more experienced too, because it takes right. time to learn these schemes and stuff. So if you're a sophomore who's beating juniors and seniors who have been in a program for three or four years, and you've been in your program for one or two, it's an indicator that you have the potential to catch on really quickly and learn the scheme quickly and do that in the NFL as well. But I would never, I would never come to a prospect conversation with you empty handed as far as the film goes, because Matt's a very, like, he likes to watch film and break it down. And he's a very like intangible guy where I'm more statistics driven. And it's, it's a good point. Like there's a, there's a combination between the two of us. That's probably the right mix, but these numbers got me interested in Rashad Bateman. The other number that really got me interested in Rashad Bateman is the number zero, because this was the first season that you were allowed to wear number zero in the NCAA and Rashad Bateman got it. And that's a whole nother theory of mine is that like probably every player wanted to be number zero because no one had ever been number zero on a football field before. So the guy who got number zero on every team, I think that says something about them, but (laughs) save that theory for another podcast. It's just like, Dude, wearing number zero is just a whole vibe on the football field. Like, it just looks sick. You look good. You play good. But like I said, yeah, dude, Gilbert Arenas made it cool. But think about all the people that were number zero in the NBA. Russell Westbrook, Damian Lillard, Gilbert Arenas, like guys who have swag. Yeah. So you can't wear number zero unless you have swag. Actually, one of my notes about him, uh, he does just kind of have like, that swagger, that confidence that you expect and kind of want out of that alpha dog receiver. Like you, they, you want them when they, the moment they step on that field to know and believe that they're the best player on that field. And there's not a damn thing anyone on that defense can do to stop them. Yeah. I I was saying it tongue in cheek, but did not mean to be sarcastic at all that 
he really actually does have that like confidence. And I'm using the word swag for Marshall's benefit because he told me I'm too old to use cool words. <laughs> so, but he does. He has he has a confidence about him, like an air about him, where he thinks that he's the best player on the field, and that's why he's wearing number zero. Real quick, too, just like the the physical things that you can see on tape with him. Uh, he's a great route runner who has advanced technique. He wins with the routes he runs instead of pure athleticism, because one of the drawbacks of him is that he doesn't have the top end athleticism that some of these other wide receiver prospects do. Uh, he's great on the 50, 50 ball. He's got really good run after the catch skills on the other side. The bad is that he, he lacks elite athleticism and he struggles with drops a little bit, but I think that when you lack that top end athleticism as a wide receiver, it is so critical to work on your craft as a route runner because you have to find a way to generate separation when all the athletes catch up to you. Like playing in high school and playing in college, you don't always go against the top end talent. So you can beat them even if you're not the best athlete in the world. But when you get in the NFL, you're playing the world's best athletes. And so you have to find a way to win. Route running is like such a critical skill. His double moves are just not fair. He's so good on those double move routes. Yeah, so some of his tape, man, he just, it's like he's not the fastest guy on the field, but he's so open on so many plays that even Tanner Morgan is hitting him. Tanner Morgan's not a great quarterback, so no no offense to Tanner Morgan. I'm just saying, like, he's not, he's not like Devontae Smith or Jamar Chase who was playing with, uh, you know, Mac Jones or Joe Burrow and putting up huge numbers. I'm like, I'm not saying that to be a knock against those guys. Because, like, having a great quarterback is not a knock on you. But when you put up good stats in a power run offense like P.J. Flex with a quarterback who is not going to be an NFL player or at least not a high pick when he's eligible for the draft, like, it's impressive to me. It definitely stands out. But, yeah, for as far as, like, NFL comps, <clears throat> like I said, I'm not the best NFL comp guy, but I saw him compared to, like, a Keenan Allen or, like, a Justin Jefferson who like obviously Justin Jefferson came in the league and tore it up last year because both of their best skills is their route running and they generate a lot of separation by running great routes. So it's definitely a skill that translates to me. So I like to see that as well to go along with those advanced statistics I was talking about. Yeah. And I mean, I think a lot like Justin Jefferson, the athleticism, kind of gets downplayed because their, their athleticism, both of these players, is good, not great. But, like, when you have good athleticism and you pair that with good route running, having a variety of releases off the line, which do not underplay how important that is because that is why Devontae Adams is literally slaughtering every NFL defensive back. He's beating them at the line of scrimmage. Nothing else matters. That's a big positive for Rashad Bateman, too. And he, One of the things I like the most about him is just the value that you're going to get out of this draft pick. Like, go back to last year. Justin Jefferson was picked, what, like 22nd, 23rd, something like that? Yeah, it was in the early 20s. It's like early 20s. And he was the third or fourth receiver off the board. I know C.D. Lamb and Jerry Judy were picked. I think and Ruggs was picked ahead of him, too. And I could just see this, you know, I'm not, I'm not calling my shot with this because I think Jamar Chase is going to be an absolute monster, but like, I could see it being a similar situation where 
we look back next season and go like, oh man, if I could do that draft over again, I would have picked him ahead of like a Devonte Smith or a Jalen Waddle. You know, if you look back at last draft, you would probably take Justin Jefferson over CD lamb and Henry Ruggs and those guys right now, especially after the season he just had in Minnesota, he was incredible. I think you would be crazy not to like, I think give it a few years and Justin Jefferson's going to firmly cement himself into like the top five discussion. I'm not saying Rashad Bateman's going to be Justin Jefferson. I'm just saying that like, he's probably going to be picked in like the early twenties, like mid twenties, like around where he was. And I think that he's going to be really productive. So I think it's again, really good value for that player. For sure. So let's go on to the next guy. Who you got? So guy number two is JOK, the Joker. Jeremiah Awusu Koromoa. I wanted to make sure I didn't screw up the last part of his last name. <laughs> JOK or Joker, either one. That's a sick nickname, by the way. Yeah. I like Joker. Which actually kind of fits with like what his position is going to be. So. Yeah, this is another guy that after you started telling me about him, I went back and watched tape. And I started like looking at the positives and I started like, I was like, okay, I absolutely see why Matt likes him. Yeah. I know some people are a lot more down on him than I am because they see the linebacker tag and they're like, well, he's 215 pounds. Like he's just going to get washed out on the run. And yeah, that's probably true if you put him in a two gag scheme and ask him to be your Mike linebacker. So don't do that. Play him towards his strengths. Who knew? So just real quick, I just wanted to say that that's the old Bill Belichick thing is that don't tell me what a prospect can't do. Tell me what he can do and I'll put him in a position to succeed. For sure. And, you know, just saying our head coach kind of comes from the Parcells line. <laughs> um. How happy would you be if you guys picked JOK in the first, like you traded down, picked JOK in the first round, and then got Jar in the second round? Uh, well, my pants would probably explode. We wouldn't be able to have Matt on the podcast for like months. Because I'd still be busy cleaning my pants. You'd be at the doctor for your erection lasting so long. I never last that long. (laughs) Keep talking about Joker. (laughs) So... Obviously, the first thing that pops off the screen when you watch him is speed. And obviously, right now, for me, the thing that comes to mind is the I am speed being with him. It's a huge part of his game. And, I mean, I've seen him literally covering Etienne out of the backfield. And Etienne just couldn't shake him. And Etienne is going to be a monster in any zone running scheme that he goes into because that speed is just unreal. And as a linebacker, he was able to match up with that. That says a lot. And I know a lot of people are like, oh, well, he's a safety. He's playing linebacker and he has the benefits of a safety. His coverage ability is probably better or at least close to as good as any linebacker in this draft. I mean, he's got a good feel for zone, not the best I've seen, but like it's pretty good, solid. And he can get a lot of depth and close a lot of distance. 
And that is a huge benefit in the passing game because when you got a linebacker that can just cover a shitload of range, that is real hard for a quarterback to consistently take into account. I mean, you just you don't expect linebackers to be, you know, four four speeds. It can really turn into a lot of incompletions or potentially interceptions. Yeah, the other big thing with the speed too is like you you were saying that a lot of people are concerned about him getting washed out in the run game because of his size. Well, you got to get a hat on him first. And if he's that fast, like linemen aren't running four fours. So, you know, if he's getting to the play before you're ready to block him, then he could still have an impact on the run game as well. Well, and when you watch him also, even on interior runs, like you still see he has the agility to just get the angle on offensive linemen a lot of times. And you know, get into the play. And sometimes I've seen him literally cover two gaps because he's so speed, so speedy. He gets to his gap and the running back cuts it back to the gap inside of that. And then he's just like, yeah, I can get that and shoots past the offensive lineman that's trying to block him and gets into the other gap. And it's like, Okay, well, you know, this is a team game, but whatever. What are we supposed to do about this again? <laughs> yeah, so I, you know, when I looked him up, I absolutely love how great he is in coverage. Like, obviously, that's his most elite skill is that he's so good at covering running backs and tight ends. He also covered some wide receivers from the slot last year. Like, he played slot corner at Notre Dame. <laughs> that's crazy. Like, yeah, he's undersized a little bit, but, you know, it's just, Again, when I look at him, it's the Bill Belichick thing. It's like, what does this guy do well? Okay, he's elite at certain things. So put him in a position to use that athleticism and be elite at those things. Like, don't use him as a run-stuffing linebacker. I've actually got an interesting tidbit on how he was used and what position he actually played. So he played what's kind of called a nickel sand. Um, it's pretty similar to a dimebacker. And way, the way that transpired was essentially uh, Notre Dame played with their base package, which is three linebackers, 45.4% of the time when there were three or four receivers on the field. The next closest was 8%. So oh, a little bit sorry, of a gap. Sorry, sorry, that's not, that's actually isn't college football. Let me clarify. So the highest percentage that happened in the NFL was 8%, which was the Pittsburgh Steelers. Notre Dame knew that like their defense was relatively young. It's a lot of switching out. Kids get confused. They were so confident leaving him on the field that much as essentially playing out of position. And they just were, yeah, we're going to stick with our base defense against four receivers. (laughs) I just think that says a lot about 
how confident the team was in him more than anything else. Before we finish up on him, I just want, I want to tell a story of James Casey because it reminds me of JOK. Do you remember who James Casey was? It's like nobody's going to remember this except for me. Yeah, I don't remember him. So James Casey played tight end in the NFL. He's like a backup tight end for the Broncos for a little bit. But James Casey went to uh, a school from Texas called Rice. And when I was a freshman at Western Michigan, we made a bowl game and we played against Rice in this bowl game. James Casey lined up at, I think it was nine different positions during that game. And like the beginning of the game, they're like, oh yeah, he's a tight end, but look for him in other spots too. He played like tight end, wide receiver, running back, fullback, defensive end, linebacker. He returned a punt. He like, he literally played like every single position. And it's just interesting that like JOK can probably play like linebacker, safety, slot corner. Like you can move him around a lot and he has a lot of like different areas he can play in. And it just reminds me of James Casey in a way is that just like, you never know where this guy's going to line up. And it's almost like that Isaiah Simmons skill set from last year, where like if you use him properly and put him in the right positions, he can be very successful playing at places all over the field. Yeah, it is. It's a lot of, it's very similar in that way. Um, James Casey killed us from like nine different positions in that game. <laughs> I'll never, um, I would never forget James Casey because of that. Last couple of things that I really, really like about him. Um, not only is he a great tackler, but when you watch him, do you know he kind of makes the ball pop out a little bit? Yeah. It's a, He's well, always going for the strip. He's got a little peanut punch in him. <clears throat> yeah. And, like, he caused a lot of fumbles. And that's that cannot be, like, undersold. Um, and the last thing is just, like, not only is he – we. I'm not going to go too much into the being a competitor thing because all of them are on our list. We're not going to mention someone who's not a competitor, but he was also like a massive leader for that team this year. Like I said, that defense was young. They needed a leader and that team ended up actually being pretty good this year. And on top of that, he also apparently like took out his own personal time to spend time with the juvenile detention center to kind of be a positive role model for obviously young people who've maybe made some mistakes and try to motivate them to maybe get on a better path, which I thought was like, again, every time you draft someone this early, you're not just drafting the player, you're drafting the person because that person is going to end up representing your organization, your franchise. And what they do off the field is also going to be very important to your franchise. All of us Lions fans, like we will forever love Matthew Stafford for the way that he, you know, poured his heart out into the city of Detroit. We, we love Golden Tate because he was, he cared about the city so much that when he saw people who needed help on the side of the road, he pulled over to help the people. Great character in a prospect cannot be overstated because that is one of the things that you cannot teach. Like you can have the most athletic guy in the world and he can have poor character and he's not going to make it. But some of these great character guys, like they typically are hard workers. And like you said, like these guys, especially first round picks, like JOK is probably the first guy we talked to. He's probably going to be the highest pick of all the guys we talk about. 
because he's projected like mid first round ish. I mean, unless like Bateman sneaks ahead of him, but when you pick a guy in the first round, like that's, it's a big deal. And he is the face of your franchise and people not only expect him to produce, but like when he's doing stuff like that off the field too, that's really cool. I really like that. Yeah, for sure. All right. Are you ready to talk about the murder train? Yes. So <laughs> we're, we're going to go from speed to violence right now, because my next guy is Javante Williams running back from North Carolina. And like, when I say violence, just watch this dude's tape. This dude wakes up on game day and chooses violence. He is not running away from people and it shows. So he is 5'10". At least last season, he was 5'10 and played at 220. So he's pretty big. He's a compact guy. Like, I think Travis Etienne is like 6'2 and he's like the same weight or something like that. Or he's like 6'2, 210. This guy's like three or four inches shorter and has like 10 pounds on him. And the most impressive thing and the thing that initially affected me to this, like looking into him, is that he had 76 broken tackles and 157 carries this past season. That's almost a half a broken tackle per carry. That's insane. That is an insane rate of broken tackles. And it shows up on film. Like, I've been talking about this all week, but if you go and watch, he had a run against Miami in the last game of the season this past year where he just, like, runs over multiple linebackers and then one pushes him into a safety where typically the safety is going to make a big hit in that situation and knock him out. He just, he knocked that safety into the next world. Like that guy guy was gone. Banished him to the shadow realm. (laughs) Yeah. He was, he was never to be seen again. No, he, it's just, he's a really like violent runner, which I like in my running backs. He's very decisive. He doesn't hesitate. He's got really good balance. And he's one of those guys that like drags the pile. He's not getting brought down by one DB when he hits the second level. He's always, he falls forward. He's like, I think had like the least negative yardage of any running back in the NCAA, like plays that were stopped behind the line of scrimmage because a lot of times the first guy that gets there does not bring him down. And it just shows up on his take. He's just running over everybody. And that's like, whether he's playing Duke or whether he's playing Clemson, he's just like, he's smashing people. And I just love it. It's like, it's my favorite tape that I watched of this entire draft so far. I don't know. I feel like on offense, you are the one typically that takes the punishment, but not Javante Williams. Javante Williams is the one dishing it out, and it's so much fun to watch. Yeah, I mean, we kind of talked about last week about how important it is, especially in the NFL, to make your decision and deal with the consequences later. And boy, does he embody that sentiment. He I is mean, the consequence. He's the consequence he, of his own decisions. Yes. Uh, I have made a decision and I am delivering your consequences. <laughs> like, is he going to have a long career? No, but he's going to have a fun career. He, I mean, he might, he might, because like you see someone who's like a violent runner, like Frank Gore used to be. And like, he obviously has had like the longest running back career ever. And I'm not saying Javante is going to do that, but he could have a longer career, but um, you know, just to be serious for a minute, he was extremely efficient on the ground last year. Besides the 76 broken tackles on his 157 carries, he also ran for over 1,000 yards. He ran for 7.3 yards per carry and had 19 touchdowns. Like, I think his floor in the NFL is that he's going to be a beast in the red zone. 
he's he's an incredibly safe player too uh, in his career. 416 carries. How many fumbles? Three. Three. Yeah. Three on 416 carries. It's pretty That's good. It. One of the things I really like about him too is that when you see like these big bruising backs like this, it's typically like, okay, yeah, great, but we can't really have him on the field for third down. He can't catch the ball. Well, Javante Williams is also really good at catching the ball. He had 25 catches for 305 yards and three touchdowns. Like, He's not going to be like a third down receiving back, but he's a guy who can play all three downs in the NFL. And he's not like a good example is like Sony Michelle on the Patriots. Every single time he's in the game, you know, it's a run because he can't catch the ball. And it's like, you have to be able to do both in the NFL nowadays. You cannot be so one dimensional. And he's not like you watch some of his plays. He, he catches it. And then it's just like, he's running it. Like he'll catch it, bring it in. And he's, trucking people he's dragging the pile he's doing all the things that you want to see so it's good he he's got good speed and acceleration to hit the hole like you said he's instinctive he's a one cut back he makes a decision and goes with it and you have to do that in the nfl you can't you cannot hesitate as a running back and that's where so many of these guys get in trouble is because they've always gotten by on their athleticism and they think like okay i can like hesitate a little bit and like cut and like dance a little bit do something cool and they're getting brought down in the backfield every time Javante Williams is just going to hit the hole and hit you. And that's what I yeah, like about and, and that that's definitely one of the areas that I love about him is that like he plays within the structure of the offense. He doesn't go rogue on a running play and then end up losing five yards because he was trying to shake people in the backfield. He runs the play and he gets the most he can get about out of it by making his quick decisive decision. But he also doesn't lose you a ton of yards by dancing around. It's an underrated quality in backs. He's not playing hero ball. He's playing murder ball. He's looking to hit somebody every single carry. And it's just, it's great. And it's a fun tape to watch. Like go on YouTube, especially the run versus Miami, but go on YouTube, Javante Williams highlights. It's just fun to watch. Uh, you know, the, the, the negatives with him, he doesn't have like top end speed to really turn the corner. It's more of like an inside runner. And also he's going to need to be coached up on blitz pickup, but I don't think there's a single running back who's ever come into the NFL who didn't need coaching on blitz pickup, especially with NFL schemes. So. No, but he's, he's not like completely bereft of ability to protect his quarterback. So. No, honestly, like if you read his scouting report, there's so many positives on him that I felt like they were just like, Oh God, we need a negative. (laughs) And they're like, blitz pickup, just throw it on there. But yeah, everybody needs and, to work on and that. I, and I feel like, does he have top like the top of the top end speed? No, but he has enough speed and just enough wiggle, not a ton. I mean, he plays a lot more like Nick Chubb than he does, say, Reggie Bush. But he's got enough of the speed and the wiggle to kind of make it so that whatever angle someone is taking on them is wrong. I don't care what the angle you take is. It's wrong. (laughs) So those are the four guys that we're going to do like a deep dive on. Uh, We had one more that we were going to do, but we're running a little bit long here. So do you want to, you want to just mention them real quick and then just like, yeah, I'll do him. him. So uh, he was my number three. This quick header is Amari Rogers. Uh, you can also call him probably the luckiest receiver in this wide receiver draft because 
His dad just so happens to be a guy named T. Martin, who is the wide receiver coach for University of Florida. Uh, and if you paid attention over the last few years, it had some pretty good ones come out, and he has most certainly worked with uh, Pitts as well. But he's, I just really like that he's like kind of built like a running back and kind of plays slot receiver like a running back as well. Um, really consistent. He'll be a day one starter. Easy money there. Moving on to the rest of my quick hitters, uh, Tyree Gillespie. So here's his resume real quick. Safety out of Missouri. He allowed seven catches all year. Versus uh, Florida, he covered pits for half the game and allowed one catch for eight yards. Then against Alabama on one drive consecutively, he <laughs> made a goal line stop on Najee Harris had a uh, pass breakup on Devontae Smith, and then a tackle for loss on Jalen Waddell. I don't think I need to say any more on him there. <laughs> oh. Has anybody ever done anything that impressive? Like, taking yeah. those plays all on the same drive against Alabama, that's pretty crazy. That's insane. Here's my offensive lineman. Tevin yeah. We had, okay, so we had to throw offensive linemen in here because we got to show love to the hog mollies. Well, and also, he is just pure joy to watch. Uh, Offensive tackle out of uh, Oklahoma State. This man is offensive line porn. Like, he just plays so violently. He loves putting dudes in the dirt. Um, And it just so happens that he's not just a mauler, but he also shows enough athletic ability to kind of contain some of the speed rushers as well. Expect to see him go in the middle of the first round, probably. And here's my last guy. Um, so, Adam, do you like receivers who are about 6'4", 215? I do like receivers who are about 6'4", 215. Do you like receivers that run like a 4'4"? Four, four? I do like receivers that run a 4'4". Four, four. How about receivers with a wingspan of like six six and a half? Sounds good to me. Well, congratulations. You like Nico Collins. <laughs> Ooh, you should be a, you should be like a prospect salesman. <laughs> so uh, he took a, he opted out this year and uh, really trimmed down. Previously, when he was playing at Michigan, he was more of just, you know, your outside boundary receiver that was really just a jump ball receiver, more the Alshon Jeffrey mold. Didn't have a whole lot of route running acumen. Dropped down to about 215, showed up senior bowl, and he was just running by guys. Uh, when they had him run routes, he was getting separation on his breaks. Like he was just, he added so much to what he was able to do. And he's starting to look like a guy who, if he was playing at that weight previously at Michigan, he'd probably be more expected to be going like round two, maybe early round three. Cause what we're seeing now is potential number one receiver type of abilities. My, uh, my quick hitter is real fast. Uh, the first one is Javon Holland safety slash corner out of Oregon. 
he was likely going to be the number one safety in this class, but he opted out of last season because of COVID. And even before that, he was extremely productive in college. In two seasons at Oregon as a freshman and a sophomore, he had 108 tackles, nine interceptions, and 10 pass breakups. And that's only in about 17 games. So he played corner one year and he played safety the other year. So he has like really, really good corner coverage skills. And he has a frame that if he fills out, he could play safety in the NFL. But if not, then he could play corner. So I like him. Uh, Second is my offensive lineman, Jalen Mayfield, uh, right tackle from Michigan. He is a very versatile and explosive player. He could maybe be a right tackle in the NFL, but he probably is going to move inside to be a guard and be a pretty explosive guard, like very athletic. Uh, He has really limited college experience. But the experience he has is against elite pass rushers like Chase Young and uh, Igor Gross Matos. And he did really well against those guys, even though he was pretty raw. So he's someone I like to play at the next level. And then finally, your boy, my boy. Matt and I are both Western Michigan alumni, so I had to mention this guy because he's, I think, the only Bronco in the draft, or at least the top Bronco. But Dwayne Eskridge, wide receiver from Western Michigan University. This dude is fast. Like, I don't know what his 40 time is. I think they projected him to run like a four, three, five. But if you watch the tape, he looks like he plays at like a three, eight. He's like track speed. He outran everybody in the Mac and then outran him again. Like he's doing like circles around these guys because he's so fast. But besides that, like he also has a really quick change of direction. He's great in the run after the catch, especially because he has breakaway speed. And a great example of that is that he averaged 20 yards per catch over his three seasons at Western. Quick note um, about his speed. Uh, I know a lot of people are like, okay, well, he was out running people to Mac. Like, no big deal. But then he showed up to the senior bowl and was still out running people. So, yeah, he, and he, uh, my last thing on him is that he also played defensive back for half a year at Western Michigan because we had so many DB injuries. They needed someone to step in and he stepped in and played well until he got hurt too. So like versatile, he kind of, it's like Troy Brown for the early 2000s Patriots. They're like, we need a DB. And he's like, I got it coach. So I I like guys like that. And there was, do you remember like not that long ago, there was buzz about him being like a second or third round pick and like right around the senior bowl. Um, yeah, I think it was the senior, senior bowl where it was like third round was like his floor. <laughs> yeah. But that's, um, that buzz has like really died down since then. But I still think he could be, you know, his floor at the next level, I think is that he's going to be a really good returner, like a kick and punt returner. Mm-hmm. And just like that speed makes you a weapon on any offense. Like he's probably not going to be Tyreek Hill, but like he could be a deep play threat. So. Yeah, for sure. A uh, quick note on Mayfield, too, is that Michigan is, like, notorious for turning out quality offensive linemen in the NFL. And the fact that he did well against guys like Chase Young and Russ Matos is uh, probably a good sign. So where he, whether he plays inside or out, like, yeah, really good there. Really good example, too. The, and I, you know, we – Matt and I are both huge homers. So like, he's going to talk about the Lions a lot. I'm going to talk about the Patriots a lot. Just get used to it. It's not going to end. The Patriots drafted uh, Michael on 
from Michigan last season, like late, like I want to say like fourth or fifth round, maybe six. I, I don't remember off the top of my head. He ended up being PFF's, I think, top graded offensive line rookie last year. Yeah, I, I like those Michigan linemen too. And Jalen Mayfield's like a little bit raw, but he's starting to get some buzz too. I'm starting to see him uh, mock to the Chiefs in mock drafts. And that would make me sad because I hate the Chiefs. And I think he's going to be a really good offensive lineman. I just, I like those guys that like, this sounds kind of counterintuitive, but when you get a guy who like played tackle in college and you move him inside the guard and now you just have like a super explosive athletic guard, I like those guys, like, especially on like pulls and like sweeps and stuff like that. Give me those guys, man. Yeah. I mean, you kind of just got to play it by whatever your offense likes to do. Yeah. Yep. So those are our guys. Uh, obviously everybody that we mentioned on this podcast is going to be extremely successful and have great NFL careers because we picked them. So, and if not, this podcast won't exist. We'll just delete it. It's our podcast. We do whatever we want. <laughs> obviously we didn't talk about the quarterbacks. Um, if you guys are interested in hearing our takes on the top five quarterbacks, you can go back and listen to last week's pod where we broke those guys down in depth and you know, we're going to go forward. We're going to keep doing more. Um, what are we tackling next week? I think we're doing controversial prospects. Controversial prospects. So uh, I know Devontae Smith is definitely one we're going to probably cover. Um, maybe Micah Parsons. I think that's a good one too. Yeah, I think we'll have a good list for next week. But Devontae Smith is definitely leading off that list because there are people that oh, yeah. are very split on him right now, especially with the high draft pick. So, okay, well. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Overcast, anywhere that you get your podcast. Matt and I are there breaking down draft prospects all month and then going to do a little mock draft at the end of the month as well. Uh, you can hit us up on Twitter at Fouled Out Sports. Um, am I missing anything? Did I plug everything? Uh, thank you. Plugged all the holes. Okay. Got any closing thoughts, bud? Oh, man, I, uh, I'm starting to think about this mock draft that we're about to do. The last <laughs> thing I, I wanted to say before we sign off is that uh, Julian Edelman announced his retirement this week, and I am bummed because that is one of my favorite football players of all time. Man, just so clutch and just, you know, leadership and heart. It just That dude's just made of heart. And I loved watching him. I'm going to miss him a lot. So Yeah, he was always great to watch, um, you know, put everything out there on the field. We kind of talked about this earlier today, but I just want to mention it. I know it's not football related, but uh, I think it is so cool that Michael Jordan is uh, standing in for Kobe Bryant and his Hall of Fame induction. Um, it's the ultimate show of respect, I think. And, I mean, Kobe was more than just a player. He was a cultural icon. Um, he was turning into filmmaking. And it's truly a tragedy that we never got to see that fully realized. Yeah. Yeah, I'm 100% going to cry during the ceremony. I'm not going to lie. I'm, oh, yeah. I'm going to cry. I'm not afraid to admit it. I'm a man <laughs> who cries. I'm in touch with my feelings. So, all right. Thanks for doing this, bud. We will be back next week to break down more controversial prospects and talk about why they're controversial and how we feel about them. So we will see you guys then. All right. Have fun guys. See you, man. Bye mom.